Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. This week, I'm talking to journalist and podcaster Robert Evans about his experience in Portland, Oregon, but also mostly his uh, his work with his podcast series, It Could Happen Here, which came out about a year and a half ago that describes the possibility for armed conflict and civil war in the United States, which has obviously become on some level prophetic. And we talk about what he's learned since then uh, that has come out and his feelings about anarchism and mutual aid, solidarity, all kinds of fun stuff. This episode is a proud member. No, not this episode. This podcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. And here's a jingle from another podcast on the network. KiteLine is a weekly 30-minute radio program focusing on issues in the prison system. You'll hear news along with stories from prisoners and former prisoners as well as their loved ones. You'll learn what prison is, how it functions, and how it impacts all of us. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. You can hear us on the Channel Zero Network and find out more at kitelineradio.noblogs.org. Okay, so welcome to the show, and I was wondering if you could introduce yourself with your your name, your pronouns, and then any political or organizational affiliation or like projects that you've worked on that are relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, my name is Robert Evans. He, him is fine. Um, and I, I mean, my big, my most political work to date, I guess, would be the women's war. Um, because uh, uh, broadly, broadly speaking, an anarchist, I'm not. I, I don't have the patience to read a lot of political theory. Um, <laughs> Murray Bookchin's Murray Bookchin's pretty much the only political theorist that I've ever like sat down with for extended periods of time and been like, okay, yeah, I, I can see this working. So okay. that's that's kind of where I, where I land. Okay. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that you wrote or I guess produced the the podcast. It could happen here, which is a podcast about what would happen if the U.S. broke into a civil war. And it came out, what, like last summer? Or like a year ago? It, it, like last spring. I think we mm. started dropping episodes May of 2019. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it has uh, proven sort of dangerously prophetic. And so one of the main <laughs> things I wanted to talk to you about is is that. I mean, I know you're also a prepper, and, and that's actually something I'd like to get in a little bit also, since this is a prepping podcast but you you laid out the possibility of a civil war in broad terms and i was wondering if you could kind of go over go over that broadly and maybe compare to how things are actually starting to turn out for me the i like it could happen here is essentially a podcast about the united states collapsing into a civil war and how it's both more likely than you think and also how civil wars don't look the same they do anymore. Because I thought, you know, I I had been talking about this for a while. Um, The first thing I published on it was in like late 2015. I I went to Ukraine um, and kind of went to the front lines of that conflict. Mm -hmm. And um, I wrote an article about sort of everyday life and kind of a modern internet connected country that's dealing with a civil war and kind of the dimension of that. So we talked about stuff like, you know, you had a, a, a community split down the line between these two fighting sides and people were using social media to talk to their friends on the other side to warn them about artillery barrages because they they would hear the guns start firing and they would be like, oh, I need to let my friend on the other side of the line know that they might oh start God. getting hit. And uh-huh. like, stuff like that that I thought was really compelling. It's stuff like um showing up at a checkpoint and them not wanting you to take any pictures of them because people were geolocating checkpoints from pictures that like soldiers were posting on social media and using it to like drop bombs on them and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a uh, yeah, r- like Russia actually passed a law about that. Um, so there, there was a number of things that I, I wrote in there. And then I, I, I came up the next year kind of as I was covering the 2016 election um, during a, a road trip through uh, the Southwest, just kind of driving through the desert in mm-hmm. New Mexico one night. Um, I had the idea to start reaching out to military 
like thinkers and planners about this idea of like what a civil war would look like in the United States. And one of the first guys I reached out to is David Kilcolan, who I mean, I guess basically none of us like in terms of his, his <laughs> belief system. He, he was like a strategist for the State Department. He planned the surge in Iraq. He's the author of a book called I Think Counterinsurgency is just the name. And he's considered like a major world expert on counterinsurgency. Mm -hmm. But he's someone you kind of have to pay attention to because he he's he's he and people who think like him are extremely influential in the planning of this sort of thing. And so I, I reach out to this guy and I'm like, hey, David, um, I've been thinking increasingly about the likelihood of a civil war or at least some sort of mass civil conflict conflict in the United States along the lines of what I've, I've seen over in Iraq, because I went to Iraq by that point. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you might want to talk and answer some questions. And to my utter shock, he, he is a very nice guy. Mm -hmm. He reaches back out to me and he says, I've actually been thinking about the same thing. Um, and he's put out some stuff this year. Um, okay. Yeah, so it uh, we, we talked for like an hour and change, and then I talked to um, uh, Daryl Johnson, who's a former Homeland Security guy who really blew the whistle on um on white supremacy white supremacy is like an organized thing becoming an increasing problem at DHS and then had to leave and he authored mm -hmm. a memo that's very famous among like the the far right uh just sort of on that so he's one of the um you know if you if you if you uh have kind of a nuanced view on at least the role of you know different sort of federal law enforcement agencies in this given conflict he was one of the guys who at least was like this is a real threat and these are the people that we should be focusing on way back in like 2014 right um and he he was very right about a lot of things he really saw a lot of the organization that we're dealing with now coming together very early so i talked to him i talked to a bunch of these guys and i put together an article about what a new civil war would look like in the united states for cracked the comedy website that i um, <laughs> that i worked for at the time mm -hmm. and um it did very well we had like got like a million views in a day and then trump immediately afterwards was elected and uh my career at crack collapsed <laughs> because of the digital content crash and um then i started doing a podcast uh, behind the bastards and mm -hmm. eventually like it was successful enough that i pitched them like i want to do a thing about the civil war and my boss at iheart is the same as my boss at cracked um and he actually was like hey i think you should do another thing about that i think it deserves more looking okay uh, so that's kind of the most direct story about how it came to be but if i can i don't think i've actually told this before mm -hmm. um if I want to talk about like where it really came from, I've been having like nightmares about this idea and dreams about this since I was like 18, 19 years old, since I was a kid. Okay. Um, and I've, I've written, I actually have a full book now that I kind of wrote set after, like a fictional thing set after that, like after at the like 15, 20 years after a civil war in the United States. But I've been, that idea has been in my head and I've been playing with it and writing and discarding things since I began writing. Um, and it, I, I think the thing, like it, it, a lot of it came together in my head for the first time during a, uh, a, a, a like an MDMA trip, like, mm -hmm. so, like, like I took. <laughs> like close to a gram, like enough that it was like full open-eyed hallucinations, mm -hmm. which you have to take a lot of MDMA to get. And I, I kept seeing this, um, I kept seeing like uh, uh, the Dallas kind of in flames and uh, Golden Cross banners and all of these things that I guess had just been rattling around in my head um, start to come together. Mm -hmm. And I guess, so I guess it, it's been in my head for a while and it was a big part of why I started going to war zones because I had this, I had this, I, 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 I knew I felt like this was coming even when it didn't, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, not a lot of people were talking about that as a, as a possibility, right. but I felt like something was coming. And I felt that way, I think, because I grew up so right wing, mm -hmm. um, that I could I could see the my parents and my aunts and uncles changing. I could see them getting hardened politically. I could see a, a great deal more ugliness than I'd seen before entering into right wing politics um, in yeah. a really um, kind of overtly fascist and eliminationist way. Um, as opposed to just being okay with eliminating, you know, foreign people whose eyes that you never see because like, <laughs> you don't even know there's a war going on in Guatemala, right? right. Like the actual, like, I'm, I, I want to do harm to my neighbor thing. Yeah. That was new. Um, or at least like it was, it was, so I, I, I started going to war zones in part because I knew this was something I needed to write about. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure about how, and I knew that if I didn't understand what it felt like to be there to be on the ground while something, to what it felt like to see a city die from the air, what it felt like 
um, to be like walking to the grocery store and hear the boom of big guns like so loud that they shake glass out of the the window panes. Like if I didn't know what that, if I couldn't, like I needed to, I guess the truth of it is I'm not a very good writer. Like I had to actually, <laughs> I had to actually like go and experience some of that before I could write functionally about it in a way that I felt would would mean anything to people. I think that at least some level of understanding of conflict is necessary for good writing. And I think that that's actually to the detriment of a lot of the contemporary fiction. I don't know. Um, so I don't, I wouldn't beat yourself yeah, up about I mean, needing that experience. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's this, you know, I, I've always felt like the best, the best white guy to ever write about mm -hmm. war is probably in my opinion, Kurt Vonnegut. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's because he didn't just see combat, like he saw collapse, right? And I, I, it's written on every page of everything he ever wrote. Like the bombing of Dresden is is a part of everything he ever wrote, even if he didn't explicitly talk about it in certain pieces. It's it's there. You can feel it lurking like a demon in the mist. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, uh, that was always very meaningful to me. Yeah. Okay, so you came back and you continued to see this. Well, like when you talk about the divisiveness, that's one of the things that I, I didn't notice it until a little bit later because I'm pretty insulated from a lot of right wing stuff. I mean, I live rurally, but people who don't like me usually leave me alone because I'm like, I'm, I'm a trans woman, but I'm like sort of scary looking. Um, mm -hmm. And people have been giving me the same shit that they've been giving me for 20 years or whatever. But I, I've been more and more seen in this modern discourse. Yeah, the, the like bloodlust is kind of terrifying. Um, yeah. And it, it becomes harder to to figure out how to bridge these gaps and and uh it, it it moves from a like hey how do we all get along to a like shit how do i fucking defend myself against a fascist takeover okay so one of my questions for you is do you think a civil war is more likely or is a civil war optimistic <laughs> like are there uh, i i think a civil yeah i mean i think a civil war is some of these some of these definitions mm -hmm. are malleable, right? Like sure. you can you can argue that what happened in Rwanda had elements of a civil war to it, mm -hmm. like right. You've got a political. I, I mean, it was there was a racial, but there was also a very strong political dimension to the killing that was occurring, um, and there was fighting. You know, mm -hmm. there, there it wasn't entirely one. The, like the massacres were mostly one sided, but there was armed conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, it's possible that whatever would happen in the U.S. would be something like that. It would be a mass murder of 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 leftists, you know, by the the heavily armed, overwhelmingly armed right, um, and you know, a, a brief conflict around that, uh, and then you know, something terrible for <laughs> the rest of mankind's future. Mm -hmm. Like that's not impossible, sure. Um, I think it would probably break down regionally more than that. Though. Okay. Um, because I, I do think, I do think there are some pretty well organized and competent enough polities that would like, that would hold together and that have the might to hold together and that have the might uh, more importantly than just holding together, have the ability to call an international aid. Like if things really did go that far, mm -hmm. number one, there's a lot of military force in, in California and the West coast. It's reasonably organized and I could see, like, particularly if you've got the kind of economic weight of California in there, mm -hmm. I could see them bringing in foreign foreign aid for sure, um, because California is where all the money is, right? Like, if you if you're going to pick one part of this country to back when it starts to crumble, you're going to back that, right? Um, you know, and and that's not the only part of it. Like, there's other broadly organized polities in this uh in this in you know the the, the united states so I, I don't know that i think it would i think you would see large massacres in some areas where the like i, I worry deeply for um comrades in you know the american a lot of the american south mm -hmm. um yeah, i worry about us too that said <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that said like you're talking, I don't think that would be one-sided either. Like, think about fucking Atlanta, right? Mm -hmm. Think about Georgia. Um, yeah. There's a lot of heavily armed people in Georgia who are not, like, white patriot type dudes right. and who have a lot more experience getting into gunfights than those people. <laughs> you know? um, so I, I, I think there's a, and I, I don't think that a civil war is the most likely thing that's going to happen right now. Mm -hmm. But I, I I think there's a good 50% chance that that's kind of a direction we're increasingly headed. And it doesn't have to happen after Trump. I think there's actually a pretty good chance, 
just looking at sort of the polls and everything, a pretty good chance Biden wins. Um, and Biden comes to power and at a time when things are continuing to get worse. We realize the virus is going to be even more devastating than it's already been. The dollar goes into free fall. Uh, a number of wars break out around the world that he's not, like we're seeing in Armenia right now, that he's not really capable of dealing mm-hmm. with competently or that there's just not enough willpower and actual, like, actual power left in the country because we've been so gutted Mm -hmm. um to deal with and things and then that sets the stage for fucking tom cotton to go like full on like because the thing that we've got with trump Mm -hmm. he's absolutely a fascist um but he's he's a very instinctive fascist you know when he does the kind of like his when he sort of calls to the volksgemeinschaft like i don't i don't even know the extent to which he's aware of what he's doing he's good at it but i don't know how aware he is and he's not great at building the infrastructure of fascism in a way that is that I think other like th- there's a lot of infrastructure for him to take advantage of. And it's been a, we've seen him do a very haphazard job thus right. far. And I think someone like Tom Cotton or or even, you know, his current vice president um, could be even scarier. Now, I don't think they have the ability to kind of get the people together in that mm-hmm. way. But there's also a sense to which. He's already done that. And maybe even if he dies, you know, of old age or whatever and can't, you know, ever run for election again, he's already knit this constituency together that can be sort of wielded like a cudgel. Um, I, I I think broadly speaking, you know, if Biden wins as opposed to Trump, we get a couple extra years right. to prepare and hopefully to turn things back from violence, because I think collapse of the present system is inevitable. Um, and it always has right. been, right? Like, it, it, like, it, like, like, logically, the United States could never last forever because nothing does. No political entity ever does. It was always going to end at some point. Right. Um, and the only hope that I have is that it can be ended in such a way that something better takes its place and that tremendous violence um, is not the birth pangs of that new thing. Right. Yeah. I, I just like I don't want to see cities burning like and not not the burning like when the right sees like people light a Wendy's on fire right. but like Mosul you know I don't want to fucking see that like and it was it was as horrible happening in Mosul as it would be happening in any other you know city in the United States because all lives are you know like the, the, their lives are just as valuable as our own but I think the the consequences globally of that shit happening on a massive scale in the United States would be um, worse than most people can think of. And I, I do hesitate. I do I do think people need to be cautioned when they look forward to the collapse of the United States, right. that there are certain things that can't be allowed to happen because the debt, like the United States grows so much of the world's fucking food. Like the famine that would occur with that, it would kill a hell of a lot of, like there's just, I don't, that that's the thing for me is like whatever happens, like everything that I've been doing, everything I've worked towards, in my career has been trying to do my own small part in stopping trying to trying to make sure that whatever happens involves as few people dying horribly as possible. I don't know. Yeah. No, that, yeah. (laughs) At the beginning of COVID, I I was a lot more optimistic when like the main thing that seemed to be happening was mutual aid networks taking over for, you know, yeah. Like there, there was this like moment of like, I mean, everyone was terrified. We didn't know what was going to happen, but there was this like moment of hope. And then, you know, and then just slowly being like, oh, this is the the rise of the militia. That's, that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, for me, at least a lot of that hope is diminished. Although I, sometimes when I talk to you're, you're in Portland, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, yeah. and so there, there's a lot more uh, active, you know, active conflict against the present system happening there from a left point of view and does that offer you more hope or does that how does that affect you it's 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 uh, both and it changes from day to day Mm -hmm. you know i've had i've had many a day during this these last four months or so where i have been certain that we were all going to die Mm -hmm. that like that there would be jackboots at my door any second um, or that somebody would would just gun me down, you know, any mm-hmm. any conceivable minute. Um, but just because they point guns at that, you all like, the time, we're and... all doomed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, and just like the level of rhetoric here. Mm-hmm. And there's been days when I've been completely convinced that that we couldn't that like victory was inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one of those days would probably be when I saw all those suburban moms try to tear down the facade of a courthouse, mm-hmm. um, of a federal courthouse <laughs> downtown. Um, that was a thing to see. And it, it, it definitely, like, obviously, the kind of numbers that Portland was drawing out didn't last. But it, mm-hmm. it was a kind of, you know, I, I've always focused um, in a lot of my work at reaching liberals. Mm-hmm. Someone described to me, uh, once described it could happen here as... Um, uh, as in habit for the NPR set, um, or yeah, which, which and I that that's very much what I was going yeah. for because I'm not reaching out to like I'm not reaching out to in most of my work. I think a lot of, of folks who listen to what you know your show probably enjoy mm-hmm. aspects of my work, but I'm 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 trying to reach and radicalize in a positive way folks who are who are mainstream Democrats and even like center right conservatives. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I think they can be reached and I think they all have to be reached. Um, and I think they can be convinced that a better world's possible and that they have to throw actual elbow grease into making it happen. And that some things that maybe they consider unpleasant, you know, are, are going to have to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like, you know, some of the protests and stuff that we've seen. I think that, um, I, I think that you, you can't. Like, if we're actually going to save the things that are worth saving about the planet, um, it's going to take a lot of people giving a shit constructively. No, no, what if we have, like, a pure little sect of people who are better than (laughs) everyone? Isn't that good enough? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it 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 ha- I I have I've had some fun Twitter conversations about anarchism where people have like Marxist Leninists, mm-hmm. which not that I think they're all bad mm-hmm. or that like there's nothing valuable about it within the ideology, but like the tanky set, mm-hmm. I've had people be like, um, you know, you anarchists always lose, whereas like uh, you know Marxist Leninists have a record of actually defeating capitalism. It was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like y'all lost. Yeah, <laughs> like you lost that war. It was a long one, and you lost. And now there's McDonald's in Russia. Like what? <laughs> what are you fucking talking about? Um, you know, it, it, it's it. I I do think we have. I think we all have to have humility. Mm-hmm. In that nothing anyone on the left, any nothing any anti-capitalist has tried yet, has yeah. has worked, right? None of us know what is going yeah. to work to actually fix this shit and to undo this horrible, horrible system we find ourselves choking in. Nobody knows the right thing to do. So we should all have some fucking humility yeah. <laughs> like about about this. Well, that's what I've always I found interesting about you know, I I well, first of all, I really appreciate the work that you do, like radicalizing liberals and reaching out to them and, you know, and, and just basically people outside of this, outside of like specifically existing radical circles. I, I really appreciate that. I try and do a little bit of that myself, but I, I'm a little bit more, I'm like one step removed from the inner circle. You know, I'm like mostly talking to like science fiction nerds who like probably vote Democrat, but don't have any like skin in the game about being Democrats or whatever, you know? I, I think... There's a, like obviously I understand reasons to be frustrated with liberals mm-hmm. and particularly the Democratic Party, right? Like, it, like I felt it as a threat when Biden talked about locking up anarchists mm-hmm. too. You know, I, 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 I'm not, but but at the same time, like I, it's the same way I feel about. I think there's actually a shocking number in places like Texas of of conservatives of people who have always sort of habitually been on the right. Mm-hmm who are are anarchists in the waiting because like i came from that mm-hmm. path right i i started out as a right libertarian um because that's how i was raised and there's there's elements of it that are mm-hmm. right you know there's elements of it that are that are when they talk about the government being the problem it is yeah, a lot of totally, the time yeah. now the solution to that isn't like rugged individualistic capitalism mm-hmm. because that's also a big part of the problem um but they they identify one of the issues properly mm-hmm. Um, which is that like, boy, howdy, the state sure sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and you can, you can in fact reach those people, um, and get them, you know, it's a matter of, of proper historical education and it's a matter of just like basic empathy, right? It's the fact that you look at a lot of Republicans and if you look at Republicans who are actually not shitty Mm -hmm. about one specific thing, it's usually something they have experience with like John McCain shitty on everything but torture very much had the right idea about torture being a bad thing because he was tortured yeah (laughs) you know yeah um if you if you can 
And so, and I think that's that's work. Like part of why I do what I do is I do think a lot of that, particularly when it comes to kind of educating people about racism, about white supremacy, about colonialism. A lot of that work ought to fall on other white people because yeah. number one, they will listen to us because racism, and number two, <laughs> it's kind of unfair to ask you know somebody who's been directly impacted by that all their their lives to figure out how to communicate with these people who it's even more stressful for them to communicate right. with. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I, I, thinking about like anarchism as a pure project that can obviously put up with nothing that isn't purely anarchist. I've actually, I've, I've always been really yeah. inspired that like, you know, when I first became politically involved about 20 years ago, all of the anarchists I knew were really excited about like Zapatismo and, and, you know, the Zapatistas in Chiapas and, and that's not anarchism and no one's pretended like it is anarchism. It's Zapatismo. It's its own concept Mm -hmm. and it's just another sort of like lower leftist concept in that it's like not a statist ideology and like not a capitalist ideology right and then Rojava I feel like kind of Rojava I feel like you you probably know how to pronounce this word yeah Rojava Rojava okay so Rojava felt like a a similar thing that is like okay this is not what you know this this is not like the anarchism that I grew up at, you know, believing or whatever, right? And yeah. I grew up, I mean, I was an adult when I became an anarchist, but, and, yeah. and yet, same. I know yeah. a bunch of people who went and risked their lives to go defend that space. And, and they, they weren't fooling themselves into thinking that this is like a perfect utopia either. And I feel like there's a, a certain amount of um, pragmatism of like, yeah it gets into the thing you're talking about with us like we we don't know what is going to work and like yeah yeah so what's going to work um specifically what is good rather <laughs> to to move it back into prepping and and civil war stuff how is yeah yeah how is what's going on influenced your your conception of prepping and like how has that changed over the past year as like crisis deepens you know, it has convinced me more than ever and given me like, like I've always known and I, I made a point of stating this and it could happen here that like the the best defense is a, an organized community, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and nothing comes close. No amount of guns that you personally can own um, come close to the defensive power of having a an organized community of people who are all invested in protecting each other. Mm-hmm. Um and I I really experienced that this summer in Portland. You know, the the as um as press, there's a level there is a level of of kind of objectivity and separation that I have to have at times and times when even like I might film things that people other people would would prefer not be filmed. And I try to be very sensitive about that. Mm-hmm. There are certain times like and I think every all of the the Portland press have actually been really like to an impressive extent, good about. But anyway, we're we're off the we're <laughs> off the off the topic. One of the things that has arisen during this that has really driven home to me the importance of community is how many people in the community have introduced themselves to me for the purpose of uh, of supporting me in what I was doing because they found value in what I was doing mm-hmm. and and really this kind of community that has come together to support each other I've had like when I hurt myself I had a, a, a physical therapist reach out who's supporting of the protests and who's attended a bunch of them and was like hey like just come over to my office like I will take care of you like we'll, we'll just do this now I had a neurologist like an actual doctor mm-hmm. give me a free consultation um, and help me out immensely with a, a, a nerve problem that I was having um, it because like they knew that the whole going through the system the normal way would be like too right. slow um, and and very frustrating and, like that's that's like that's an actual doctor like coming out and be like no no I, I got you right um, we, we had a yeah like it, it, shit like that it, it, it is kind of a microcosm of 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 what I'm talking about it's all these people with different skills they saw something a skill that I had that was valuable to them. They offered me skills that they had that were valuable to me and we're all supporting each other. And, you know, it's in, in just as real a way as the, as the, as the folks, the very brave folks, um, you know, who, who masked up to confront the proud boys on the 22nd, mm-hmm. who have been confronting the police every night are supporting each other, you know, pulling each other out of gas clouds, um, helping set each other's broken bones, um, all of that stuff, you know, it, it, the, the perfect example of prepping to me 
and one of the things that has made me feel less worried about the collapse that I feel coming closer every mm-hmm. day was how my community rallied on the 22nd when hundreds and hundreds of, of militia and proud boys and patriot types showed up heavily armed to fight and like way more than a thousand Portlanders, all very organized, all bringing different skills to bear. You know, some folks were there ready to have a physical confrontation to physically defend. There were people in the shield wall. There were people, medics. There were people providing food. There were people doing legal aid. There were people documenting everything. Like this whole community came together and and made them run. Yeah. Right. Broke their shield line and ran them out of town. Um, and I don't want to ever see that group of people have to pick up <laughs> rifles. Yeah. But I know that if they had to, the important stuff is there. The rifles are the least important thing, right? You know, mm-hmm. access to them is obviously important. You know, the second, like like being, having access to the equipment. But the thing that's most critical is having the organizational infrastructure, the will to accept danger on each other's behalf, mm-hmm. um, and and feeling the responsibility to take care of each other. Like, that's... And so my prepping has has turned to be less and less about acquiring gear mm-hmm. since you know this all started and more and more towards meeting and building connections with more people. I have friends who can forage. Uh, I have friends who are doctors. I have friends who have small farms. You know, I have friends who uh, have a variety of different very useful skills, and we're all making sure that we can take care of each other. Um, and I am actually, in spite of the violence arrayed around us and the threats coming after us, in some ways less worried about my friends and I and this community here um, in Portland than I am about a lot of other people. Yeah. Uh, because all of this violence and aggression and like everything that people have faced here has been terrible. And it's the the mental health consequences of everything everyone's yeah. dealt with are going to be with us for a while, people. Are, mm-hmm. But people here... I I felt like I don't know it, it, maybe if this will make sense but I after years and years of identifying as an anarchist being a part of this community and doing my part in co- defending it I feel like one now that makes sense I think that it's a very small comparison but actually it was literally Portland I I um I moved to Portland when I was 19 and was like a you know brand new minted anarchist and joined the Mm. the anti-war movement in 2001 and two, two, two and three, two and three. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, and I hadn't read a lot of theory and I didn't need to, because I, I knew how to, um, I knew how to like link arms and snake around a police line. I knew how to like stare down, like, do you all still have that Nazi cop, um, like literal Nazi cop? Uh, no, Kruger, no, he, Kroger? he retired this year oh. with a full pension. Yeah, the the guy who mm-hmm. had the actual straight up, like we're not even yeah. like colloquially calling him a Nazi. He got in trouble because he was maintaining Nazi shrines to dead yeah. members of like <laughs> yeah. the Wehrmacht and the Va- or dead members of the Waffen SS, yeah. like in public parks. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kruger. No, no, he left this. Oh, year. that's he retired with full benefits. I'm so so glad. I'm so glad that's how he ended up stopping being a police officer. Um, yeah, no, that, that man, like fucking rules. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He, he definitely pointed a a grenade launcher at my face from like three feet away when I was 20 years old. Um, and I definitely have that seared into my brain to some degree, you know? Um, but so I I had a similar, not to, to the same degree, but like it was, it was the, it was direct action that taught me what, um, that taught me what anarchism was and taught me what it meant to be taken care of by a community and help take care of a community. And so I'm, that's like a, that is a good silver lining. It's like a fairly thick silver lining on a pretty yeah. shitty cloud. Um, yeah, but it, it is the kind of thing you can't really know until you've been there. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have to, you have to be pulled through the eye of that needle to feel it. Yeah. You know, because like now I know, um, uh, now I know for a fact, like, like as opposed to having friends that I'm like, oh, you know, I think, you know, so-and-so would, you know, take a bullet for me or I them. <laughs> now I know they would, right? Like, yeah. uh, I, I, I have a, my, I have a friend, my friend Elaine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were there were times when I was doing the live streaming and I felt like it was very important to do the live streaming because it was the thing that had the biggest actual 
kind of political impact mm-hmm. uh, on the situation on the ground. And in order to do the live streaming, I could not wear a, a gas mask because I, I didn't have access to any at the time that I could actually um, talk out of. Right. So I, uh, I, I was very vulnerable to the tear gas. And she was my partner um, and was able to... But she was able to wear a mask. And so we would I would just trust that when we got gassed, I would be blind and unable to breathe. And she would direct me out like yeah. there times when we've like had our I've been facing a riot line, mm-hmm. you know, 10 feet away of them, like rushing at us and just like moving backwards and filming with her like guiding me and keeping an eye on the actual road. And like, there's a number of people. That's one example. There's a ton of people now that I have that level of trust in because we fucking been there. Um, you know, the, like the other, the other press around me, the other Portland press folks who I'd been through so many nights of gassings and violence with when, um, when I had my confrontation with Alan Swinney Mm -hmm. and he was like, he and his guys were like, or sorry, when I, when I, when that guy broke my hand, that other proud boy mm-hmm. broke my hand. And then I moved up to him to confront him about it. And he started slamming his shield into me. And I was trying to hold my ground. Another local reporter, Justin Yao, just like walked up and put his hands on my back to mm-hmm. brace me. Um, like a bunch of shit like that. Like the, the stuff that you can't know unless, unless the shits come to you that at least, least I know yeah. now, you know? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a, it's actually, it's a really optimistic thing. I've been saying, this is probably the third time I brought up on this podcast is watching from the safety of my, my uh, cabin in North Carolina, watching the, the fascist shield wall break and like from mm-hmm. a firework being thrown at it or whatever. And just, it's just like interesting <laughs> to think about. Cause I, I mostly yeah. thought about from the point of view of like, oh, okay, well the, you know, the anti-fascist side like is like more essentially battle hardened, at least to the things that go boom in their midst yeah but i but even just like thinking about purely from a like collectivism point of view of like that has always been one of our major strengths it's interesting for me i i also come from a like individualist background and 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 i continue to remain it's one of the reasons i'm an anarchist and have never had any particular interest in state communism is that i i'm i'm uh i'm collectivist but not in a way where anyone can tell me what to do you know um and it's just like, it's been really interesting and beautiful to learn. I don't know that that's one of our hugest strengths is just literally taking care of each other. And that like, I'm really interested in the idea that like solidarity allows us to be individuals better rather than like the idea that like individualism and collectivism are opposed to each other. I understand that people use them to describe opposite tendencies, but it still seems nonsensical to me. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it's, it's the thing that we actually do that um it's the thing that we actually do that prepares us for what's for what's act, well, you know, what what in some ways is already mm-hmm. here right which is that when it when it comes to collapse the only option authoritarians have is fascism yeah. right um when we have multiple options and and again Maybe we don't know what those options like. We don't know what the what the right thing to do is like. What the actual like wh- how things are going to shake out. Just like sort of you know, there's there's ongoing debates to this day in Rojava about like the best way, like things that might need to change, things that aren't like like great about the system, like imperfections mm-hmm. within it. Um, uh, but but there it's fundamentally these these things are based in taking care of each other right like the system that the people in northeast syria were were building while fighting these like the the fascists of isis mm-hmm. is a system that was based in people taking care of each other and it went up against a system that was based in harming people for the benefit of a few um and it won and and we can too um <laughs> I don't know. That's where I go. <laughs> how how do we win? Is a nice simple question. Uh Yeah, you know, I I think there's the there's the political option and then there's kind of the more realistic option. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I I do think I do think there's a lot of like being an electoralist or whatever. Um uh uh not not a not a popular stance these days and I wouldn't say that's <laughs> That's certainly not my only plan. At mm-hmm. the same time, I have to note, like, a, an experience that I've had that I don't think a lot of folks on the left have had is growing up uh, in a very conservative home and watching 
these people, the people who are in charge now on the right, mm-hmm. were the same people that my parents, when I was a kid, would be like, oh, these these people are are lunatics. Like these people are like like they're not they don't represent us. Right. They're never going to have any power. Like you should ignore folks like that. They just make us look bad. Right. And now they're in charge. And obviously the the electoral game is a hell of a lot easier for the right wing to play. It's tilted in their favor. Mm-hmm. That said, I've watched a fringe political ideology um, take over a more or less mainstream party and pull it in a direction that would have seemed impossible. Um, so I don't think it's impossible for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, can it be done in a time frame that 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 uh, is fast enough that that we can actually mitigate stuff like climate change? Um, I don't know. That's that that's 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 very much an open question. But I that that's one option is to continue to get leftists in power at the local level, mm-hmm. like the right did, um, and build from there and be able to actually like push changes within communities based on community will. Um and and yeah, maybe 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 we can fix sh- shit that way. I don't know. I'm not going to say it's impossible because I watched <laughs> something similar happen right the tilt that the right went through is about as extreme as the tilt that we need the democratic party to go through in order to be a be something that could possibly be a force for good as opposed to like neutrality bordering on evil um so i i don't i i don't think that's impossible the other thing is we let the chips fall we accept the thing the fact that things are going to break apart Mm -hmm. and we do our best to pull as many people onto the life draft as possible um and i i i don't know i i keep coming back to democratic confederalism or or, uh, libertarian municipalism because i i you know bookchin when he was sort of grousing around the this idea putting it together he was kind of i think looking at a lot of the same stuff we're looking at i think he just had a very far vision about where things were going to go in this country um and including you know ecological collapse was 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 heavy on his mind and uh, he attempted to develop a system that would play towards some historical things that have always been true about the United States as a polity while while fixing aspects of it. And I think one of the things I like about that system is it does allow for regional autonomy in a way that I think is necessary to avoid mass bloodshed. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of folks who are on the right and not the most reasonable people in the world who could convince who could who could potentially be pulled into a system like that if you were able to actually deliver guarantees that like we're not coming for your fucking guns yeah, man you totally. know like we're, we're not we're not like like you could keep doing your yeah. shit um as long as you don't try to change the way other people are doing their shit and yeah. we can we can exchange resources and trade and engage in mutual defense and like i don't know there it's 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 it, it in terms of systems that could sort of crop up in a collapsing united states that would allow Areas like Portland, for mm-hmm. example, that are surrounded by rural areas that are wildly different politically from them. Um, it's a thing that could allow uh, for positive movement forward without just like one side murdering the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think that um, I think that some of the st- I think that that mutual aid is an important is important because it helps people, but it's also important from a propaganda standpoint in, in that regard, because when people get helped it's hard to hate the people who are helping you. Yeah, isn't a lot of counterinsurgency you know, built even on if that? You bought it. Yeah, yeah. The the stuff that actually works, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and usually we don't do it for the same reason that like police don't de-escalate because we have bombs and bombs are easy. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yes, like if you actually want to, if you actually want to win an insurgency, the right thing to do is make the people supporting the insurgents and a decent chunk of the insurgents like happy and comfortable mm-hmm. so that they don't feel the need to to fight. Yeah. Um it's the it's the fucking yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like people support whatever um, system is supporting them. You know, it seems like like most people I don't know, like I think about like some people that I like know and love like in my family and stuff. I'm like, you know, this this person's never going to be a revolutionary. My you know, they're never going to be like yeah, but but yet I'm like they would be perfectly content in a like 
you know, anarchist or democratic confederalist or whatever society, because they like don't mind being responsible and free, you know, like, um, yeah. And I think that people just uh, align generally with the systems that, that feed them. And so I guess that's the whole thing about collapse is that the system is no longer providing for huge numbers of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and people will be forced to care about <laughs> certain things that it's e- it's easy to not get politically involved mm-hmm. um, when you know when things are good, yeah. which is part of the problem in our system, right? Like we we one of the things that needs to replace the system we have and is one in which it's impossible to not be involved, yeah, um, because you're not really free if you're not directly involved in the system that like in the system that, that, that organizes your community, right? Yeah. Like you, you have to be a part of it. Um, otherwise you're, you're just, a, you're just waiting to be a slave of some system. Yeah. You know, if you're not, if you're, if it's not a system that everyone, like some sort of system is necessary to organize human society at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's a system that everyone in the system is a part of, then those people have the potential at least to be free. Um, I don't know. That's, that's again, not a political <laughs> theory guy. One of the things, something you were talking about earlier about like, you know, like, yeah, don't, don't show up and be like, we're coming for your guns if you're trying to win anyone over. And I, I think one of the moments I had where I was like, no, the Democrats are just going to completely like, lose everything was when i realized that like yeah while fascism was rising they continued to focus on guns and god it's so frustrating and it's like the people who yeah. are fascists already have guns you know <laughs> like like yeah. the rest of us are like oh shit i don't really like guns but it suddenly seems a lot yeah. more important um but but even then it's just like it's also such a like you know, there was that that meme about the like thirty to fifty feral hogs meme, where yeah, some guy was like, someone was like talking about banning the AR fifteen, and he was like, I need the AR fifteen. What if thirty yeah. to fifty wild hogs come for my children in the yard, and I need a high capacity magazine yeah. to shoot them? And the entire liberal <laughs> chunk of Twitter just laughed at this yeah. guy, and then slowly it just comes out more and more that we're like, oh yeah, no, that's that's real, like. No, Hogs guy was completely yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> he was he was actually looking at a real yeah. threat and identifying a tool to solve yeah. it. Yeah. It is literally the best tool um, to solve that problem. Is <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's the right thing to do if you've got to drop thirty to fifty feral yeah. hogs. Although I, I know a fellow who has used a drone and 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 a, and a Toyota truck in a uh-huh. similar uh, capacity. Um, but um. Yeah, it's uh, and, and I'm I don't know. It's hard to be optimistic about anything because every time I <laughs> I announce my cautious optimism, like the reverse happens mm-hmm. immediately. But I am cautiously optimistic after the last night's debate because Biden didn't really go after guns. Okay. I don't think at all. Maybe I, I was drunk, so maybe I missed <laughs> some of it. But I didn't hear the gun stuff, and instead I heard, um, you know, the closest thing we're going to get to a Democratic presidential candidate saying. Antifa's not a boogeyman, yeah. which is, you know, citing a broadly accurate direction from comrade director <laughs> of the FBI. Um, what a fucking world. Which was at least like, I didn't expect yeah. that. Yeah, what a world. I expected him to throw Antifa on, yeah. under the bus and be like, oh yeah, those people should be in prison. Yeah. And like, and then we need to take the guns. Yeah. And that's not what happened. And my, I have to assume it's because people in the democratic party were looking at some fucking numbers and decided this is not the right like throwing these people under the bus is going to lose us votes right and going after guns is going to lose us right. votes um i don't know i may be proven wrong tomorrow but um <laughs> by the time this I'm comes out <laughs> somewhat hopeful by that yeah yeah like joe biden may be calling for the death of all anarchists <laughs> yeah. like by 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 45 minutes from now i don't know i, I i'm broadly hopeful based on that that like maybe the the maybe uh, an element of rationality has entered has entered this conflict that wasn't there previously um i am 
an eternal optimist because I know that I will be confronting more tear gas and rubber bullets and batons in the near future. Mm -hmm. And optimism is the only thing that allows me <laughs> to keep doing that. So, you know, if you think I'm being unreasonable, like just keep it to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's, I mean, yeah, I, I, uh, I sometimes let myself fall into doom and gloom. And, and then I remember that like, I literally think that optimism is the only way to have a chance of winning. Like I, I talk about it as like strategic optimism. Is this yeah. like, I don't expect, I've been saying for a long time to my friends that my goal is to die old and in my bed, surrounded by my friends and having lived half my life, at least half my life in like a free and anarchist society. And I don't, I don't expect that, you know, um, I don't feel incredibly optimistic I feel less optimistic than usual about the idea that I'm going to be alive a year from now, but I can't, mm. I can't just spread doom and gloom, you know, and, yeah. and optimism is like the only way to fight to win is to recognize that there are avenues by which you can win and then try those avenues, you know? Yeah. I, 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 I continue to think that the most, the most valuable propaganda mm -hmm. that the anarchist movement has ever had uh, is, is, is Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. Um, <laughs> Posadist Gene Roddenberry. Uh, <laughs> um, because it, it does attempt to, again, not mm -hmm. like your, like Rojava, not your perfect anarchist future, mm -hmm. but it, but it is, it is an attempt to look into the future and say, no, things get better. Yeah. Brought, like th like we fix the biggest problems and there's new problems and other things and we deal with some of the old ones still but like we like it, 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 the the i i don't think there's anything more courageous in fiction mm -hmm. than to imagine a better world yeah um and almost no one does it anymore it almost never happens <laughs> yeah <laughs> because it's so easy to think about collapse yeah. and it's so hard and it takes so much courage to be an optimist um in that way and i you know, I I think um, I I I think it's desperately needed. Yeah, is is more optimistic fiction that looks toward a future that might be better. Um, have, you, have you read Parable of the Sower? Otherwise, people can't imagine it. Yes, yes, Octavia yeah. Butler. I love Octavia yeah. Butler. Um, yeah, I, I feel like that's when I when I think of yeah. the most prophetic things about the current situation i mostly think about parable of the sower and then yeah. after that i think of um it could happen here now it could happen here you you were a little bit closer yeah. to it at the time whereas you know yes um yeah in this book this the parable of the sower which everyone should read if you haven't already it is a, a slow apocalypse in which people set out to try and create a better society while a fascist religious figure who ran under the platform of make america great again is trying to kill everyone. And she published this in like what? 98? Yeah. Something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, sometimes it feels, the world feels kind of fake when I think about these particular things. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, it makes sense because I, I think Octavia Butler obviously saw further mm -hmm. than any of us. Like people, people, I get credit sometimes for like seeing into the future, but Octavia did it, you know, from a much right. further distance. And I think a big part of it is that yeah. she was a black woman, you know? Like, she was directly confronted by a lot of the stuff yeah. in a way that gave her, I think, a gimlet-eyed view of the future. And, I, you know, Octavia does tend to be more negative mm -hmm. uh, about human beings than I think mm -hmm. I am. Um, so I, I do have some disagreements, but, like, the amount of things that she was terrifyingly <laughs> prophetic about is... um yeah. Uh, really hard. You read Parable of the Sower and yeah. then it's sequel. Parable of the Talents. Um, both, both, yeah, Par Parable of the Talents, both very yeah. good books. So is your... Uh, a ahead. friend of mine who was... Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. oh no, I, I came to those books because a good friend of mine uh, who was raised in the Quiverful movement, mm -hmm. so like a dominionist Christian cult, when she listened to It Could Happen Here, like sent me a copy of Parable of the Sower. Um and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I, I got beaten to the punch. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is the, you said you wrote a novel that's set after a civil war. Is it optimistic? Yeah. Um, in parts, mm -hmm. you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a, some things will do, will be better and some things will be mm -hmm. worse because every part of the country goes in different directions. So you've got like, you've got kind of a, 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 
traditional right-wing Christo-fascist republic that covers a chunk of the South. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got kind of a corporatist state in the Northeast. You've got like a a broadly independent West Coast. And you've got a lot of areas that just like aren't part of a polity anymore. Mm -hmm. You'll have cities and stuff, but like the the rural areas around them aren't really like have have more or less collapsed. And you have some, you know, I I, I said it in Mm -hmm. Texas, uh, which turned into kind of like a a right libertarian state and is collapsing under the onslaught of a of a christian isis like mm-hmm. group um and i kind of based sort of what was going on in there and like i had austin as sort of a quasi independent polity in a similar way to how like kurdistan is in northern mm-hmm. iraq where you've got this like kind of collapsing state in this one region in it that does sort of work um so yeah like i i did and there's there's some some more optimistic stuff within some of the different kind of 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 groups that i imagine there's kind of like wandering um anarchist communities that are like mobile like vehicle based communities traveling around and and you know uh, <laughs> uh trading and coexisting with one another in this kind of like broad wasteland mm-hmm. of the southwest yeah i had I, it, it was fun it's a fun thought experiment um i don't know if if people will ever see it okay um but it it helped me crystallize some stuff i um I used to run with a publishing company called Combustion Books. I used to have a, an anarchist utopian series I was trying to run. And so I, you know, um, several years ago, I would have been able to offer you that uh, I would be happy to look at it. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, the I actually, and I, you got, you got kind of lucky with how you predicted shit going, I think. Um, I had a book that I had to drop that was also set after some civil wars that was like set in 2040 after like the third civil war or whatever. But it, I got it wrong because I thought that the way that the right wing would come to power, I actually had to stop the book. I wrote 50,000 words of this novel and I've dropped it. Um, I thought the way that the right wing would come to power in the U S is by appealing to identity and appealing not to like white identity, but like specifically being like, as long as you're born in America, you're one of us and everyone yeah. else, fuck you. And like, you know, I had like all women trans inclusive right wing military units fighting against like a diverse collection of, you know, um, different sort of leftist and, and non right wing ideologies. And uh, yeah, it, it, nope, the, they fucking just, and they just came in on the same war well, drums they always be right beat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, maybe. <laughs> you might be right yet, yeah. you know. If they lose this round, you might be right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, uh, I, I, one of the, the, the way I kind of envisioned the collapse mm-hmm. and it's set well after the collapse. Mm-hmm. So like one of the main characters is basically a kid living in Dallas, kind of where I lived working as a fixer. And he's based heavily on a lot of my friends in Iraq mm-hmm. over there who just like found like woke up one day to find up their like their their country was collapsing mm-hmm. and all of these foreign journalists were in town and so like well I guess this is how I'm going to get out <laughs> is I'm going to make enough money uh-huh. to leave <laughs> yeah um so I uh but like I I I I kind of envisioned the collapse happening with um I don't know there there's like a sci-fi element mm-hmm. to it cuz my 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 experience with um post with cyberpunk is kind of irrevocably tied to Shadowrun, mm-hmm. so I, I had to throw some of that cool <laughs> shit in there um you know like like and so some of the people here so like the people who kind of were behind the collapse of the old united mm-hmm. states was like a mix of a number of protest movements and then terrorist cells made up of u.s military veterans who had like received um a lot of of, of biological modifications mm-hmm. and stuff and who had been kind of like the idea being that like these guys received such a high level of modification that it was kind of impossible for them to continue any sort mm-hmm. of service like you know they made the mistake of i don't know it, 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 it's 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 like i said i don't know if anyone will ever see the book yeah but yeah okay well i hope that yeah. eventually we get to see the book but you know i also yeah. i mean i know that you're a good article writer i can't like specifically say that you're a good novelist i don't know one way or the other you know um yeah neither do i um <laughs> yeah um it's certainly harder than um you know and i i I took the coward's Mm -hmm. way out right like there's elements of optimism in the book but it is about like a a post-collapse society um because it's easier for me to imagine that too which is a problem yeah Yeah. all right well we're coming up on an hour and i uh do you have any any last thoughts about 
what you got right or wrong about your predictions for civil war, not your predictions, your concerns about the possibility of civil war and how things have developed? I didn't call the anarcho Bidenist movement really, really uh, stepping up. But uh, <laughs> do you see that? Like, I, it's a joke about that um, that that person who very clearly lit their yeah. own garage on fire uh-huh. and then wrote Biden twenty twenty in a circle A on it. <laughs> um, I did not call Portland, Oregon, being declared an anarchist jurisdiction, mm-hmm. along with other like that part. That's been the weirdest part of it so far. That like that just happened. Yeah. Like, and I feel like we haven't all processed it that, like, the president declared three cities anarchist jurisdictions. Yeah. Um, we haven't stepped up and we're yet. We're all just like, okay, like, <laughs> we just got to move on. Yeah. There's too much happening. <laughs> um, I, I, I never expected that our anarchist warlord would be a guy like Ted Wheeler, but, um, yeah. Or 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 the fucking who is it? who's the mayor Cuomo of uh, of New York is that the fucking New I'm York not guy? sure I don't I I can is it, I can picture uh, it spelled whoever whatever whatever rich white yeah. guy yeah shocking <laughs> shocking to see that that all of these these people are actually yeah anarchists. we just got to hold them to that um, now be like oh okay like uh well yeah. now you're not in charge anymore yeah. and um maybe you're not even mm-hmm. a good facilitator but we'll give you a shot um yeah yeah wild. Um, I don't know. Like it's it's. Uh, I didn't call the plague. Yeah. I mean, I I I did talk about like I made some plague related predictions that were kind of similar to what happened on another podcast, mm-hmm. but I did not like I didn't I didn't work that in as sort of like an inciting incident. Mm-hmm. Um, but goddamn, it sure was. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and I, I I was still shocked, you know, for everything that people say I called utterly shocked by the degree to which George Floyd's murder galvanized um, a lot of this nation. Um, And very positively, like, I'm happy it happened. Uh, I'm not happy he was murdered, (laughs) but I'm happy that people responded by getting angry in such a concerted way, because I I didn't expect that. After I I had gotten, like, I think a lot of us just numb to black men being murdered Mm -hmm. by police and felt like the most we were ever going to get was, like, small, Mm -hmm. like, Ferguson, right? Um, which gets crushed and forgotten by most of the voting public. And that did not fucking happen here. (laughs) And I did not expect that. Um, And I'm very, I mean, for all of the trauma, it's brought a lot of people I care about for all of the difficulty, for all of the danger that's still inherent in the fallout from it. I'm glad that people didn't just let that one happen. I'm one of the things that really blew me away was just watching people, when the when the precinct miraculously caught fire of its own volition, um, it yeah yeah with no human yeah. incitement whatsoever. The, yes. at least the yeah. like the sort of more liberal spheres that I interact with, people were kind of like yeah all right I mean I can't blame them you know and yeah yeah <laughs> and I expected not that you know that was very hopeful for me yeah yeah. That was a. Uh, I would. I would have given a lot to have been able to been, to to have been able to have been in Minneapolis mm-hmm. that night. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just to just to have seen. Yeah. It. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. Shout out to Nico from Unicorn Riot <laughs> on that one. That was that was um, a, a historic feat within the annals of journalism. His first. I don't know. Three, four, five mm-hmm. days of covering that um absolutely astonishing yeah work okay yeah well so how can people find you or what are the projects that you're most excited to point people towards anyone who's listening wants to know more well we we have a podcast that's kind of broadly about this wild summer portland's having Mm -hmm. you know not just the the blm protest but a number of things like the proud boys and just sort of like becoming the center of this 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 sort of a lot of a lot of right-wing hatred and all of this like everything that's happened here this summer because i think it's worth chronicling and Mm -hmm. i don't trust anybody i don't trust anybody with a lot of money to do it right you know um so so we we've we've got a budget and i've got a small team and we're going to put something together and um, i i think it'll at least lay things out um 
you know, I, I want to try to do it like I did in the Bellingcat article, you mm-hmm. know, where I, it's it's at least getting across to people what happened, because almost nobody, especially like within kind of the mainstream audience that I, I court, uh, no one really knows what the fuck's going on in Portland outside yeah. of Portland within that audience, because they don't, you know, the, the, the actual news, the mainstream news shit that you're going to get isn't going to. So I want to try to reach that crowd with something accurate. Yeah. Um, and um yeah i'm excited for that you can find me on twitter at i write okay um that's my twitter uh i have a podcast called behind the bastards we'll be talking about cecil Rhodes next week so people will be interested in that I think. and I, I will say to anyone listening that um behind the bastards is one of the best history podcasts that i've listened to i've listened to a lot of history podcasts and it um it's a lot less dry and than most uh most history podcasts <laughs> so yeah Thank you. All right. Well. All right. Well, I guess. That's an episode. Hooray. (laughs) I'm going to stop recording now. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell me, tell people about it. Tell the algorithms that run the world and all of our machine dictators that you appreciated hearing my voice so that more people can hear my voice and more specifically just, well, the algorithms matter way more than they should. And if you like and subscribe and tell your friends on social media and maybe even more importantly, tell your friends in real life, if you get anything out of this, uh, please do so. And also you can contact me at magpiekilljoy at, on Twitter. And if you have any questions or feedback about this episode or any other episode, I'm probably going to start doing a, a listener feedback uh, segment soon. And if you want to support the show more directly, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com slash margaretkilljoy. And I put up um, music and zines. And right now I've been doing a lot of work with tabletop role-playing. And so I've been putting up some more of that work up there. In particular, I'd like to thank Chris and Nora and Haas the dog and Kirk and Willow, Natalie, Sam, Christopher, Shane, and The Compound for making this podcast possible. All right. I will talk to you all soon. Good luck with everything.